KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Don't want to be she, a player, I'm not a player, I just crush a lot. Hey guys, it's Amy. So a little something special today on the Mashup Americans. It's our very first live show with the one and only Eddie Huang. Yes, that Eddie, founder of Bauhaus Restaurants, star of Huang's World, and author of two books, Fresh Off the Boat and Double Cup Love. Uh, you must buy these books, guys. Rebecca and Eddie taped the show at Scripps College in California as part of its public series of talks, Scripps Presents. The series features conversations with today's most lively and provocative thinkers and explores the intersection of contemporary humanities and pop culture. Very mashy. And we just had to share it with all of you. Enjoy the show. Hi, Eddie. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you a few speed round questions, which right. are... I'm going to get rid of this pillow. Yeah, I'm liking mine. <laughs> it's, it's keeping me very... I'm not into the lumbar support. Really? Yeah, I'm good. Maybe I'll try that. No, yeah. I liked it better. <laughs> ah, okay. How do you mash up? I'm a Taiwanese, Chinese, sometimes proud to be American, bilingual, uh, shants-wearing person that was raised <laughs> on hip-hop and basketball. I'm really into your shants right now. Thank you. I'm yeah. way, I'm way I mean, like, What material is that? I think it's wool, but my strategy is pretty much to just wear the same thing I wore in ninth grade, and when it goes out of style, go out less, and when it's back in style, go out more. <laughs> I've, I've been I really shoes. like that. I'm glad that I'm not doing that because it would be just like white tank tops and pants that were <laughs> cut here on the side with some Adidas shell toes, which is not, not cool. So <laughs> what did you call your grandmother? Lolo and Nai Nai because Lolo is your mother's side and Nai Nai is your dad's side. And which is the grandmother who lived with you? The grand, uh, at one point they both lived with us, but the one that lived with me longer was Nai Nai on my dad's side. She stayed with us longer in Florida, and then like for one summer, Lolo came and stayed with us. And did they get along when they were at your house? Uh, they never stayed together. Okay. I don't think they had like beef. <laughs> I, think, I think they liked each other for the most part, but my parents had beef for so long that <laughs> they were just concerned. They were genuinely concerned for everybody involved in the house. <laughs> um, what's your comfort food? Soup dumplings, the Faro's pizza. Ooh, I love Noodle Town late at night. If I'm in New York, I go to Noodle Town, get seafood pan fried noodles. I got like, it depends what neighborhood I'm in. I got yeah. a different comfort food, but yeah, soup dumplings, seafood pan fried noodles, the Faro's pizza, pastrami sandwich if somebody's open, and a chopped cheese or like a, a tuna sub from the bodega. Yeah, yeah, they do have. The, that's food. what we're missing here in LA. is actually a really good bodegas. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no bodegas. There's no walking culture. You can't just walk anywhere and run into something. You have to drive into something. Um, I mean, let's not make this into a thing where yeah, we're dumping no, on we're LA. No, we're okay? not going to dump on it. <laughs> I like the SGV. The, the, the food is better in LA. You just have to drive it to it. Well, speaking of food, you just opened a restaurant here, is that right? Yeah, we opened, we opened in Chinatown, Far East Plaza. I want to talk a little bit about that, which is like talking about authenticity, mm -hmm. right? So you've said you're, you honor Chinese-American cooking, right? Yeah. You're like, that's how we came up. That's, I think, a quote in your yeah. book, right? Yeah. But, you know, Bauhaus is now in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. So kind of what does authenticity mean when it comes to food? 
huh, what does it mean? I think it really starts with like, is it authentic to an experience or is it authentic to like something an ad agency wrote on your menu? Or, you know, I, I think a lot of times it's about understanding who you're serving, what are the masters, and where is the power in this restaurant, just like with anything, mm-hmm. right? And if the master and the power is the history and native country and native eaters, then, you know, for the most part, that seems to be authentic to the cuisine you say that you're cooking. A lot of chefs cook things like, this is new American Chinese or new American Korean, and then it almost feels like you're just cooking to yourself, mm. like you as the chef is the audience it's a little egotistical and um it it's not paying homage to the history and traditions because every time you cook you are standing on the shoulders of giants like you didn't invent fire you didn't invent (laughs) the spoon you know like a lot of people did things and you're standing on the shoulders of giants and i think it's important to respect that and remember that and know your place and it's fine to tweak it it's fine to bring your innovation but i th- i think there shouldn't be this rush and desire to make your imprint i think a lot of times mm. a lot of people's initial inclination with anything is like i want to i want to make it like my voice or i want to make it my style it's like well you know why don't you listen to what's gone on before you and if there is a place that you think you can inject yourself and improve on this fantastic but like pay attention who came before you and so in terms of authenticity, I usually ask, like, what are your values and what are you trying to serve? And are you being authentic to those values? So. And what's your mom's quote about chopsticks? Yeah, my mom's quote about chopsticks is, one chopstick, I break you easily. Two chopsticks, a little more effort, I still break you. But three chopsticks, you're unbreakable. And, like, I broke three chopsticks and it wasn't true, but the, the, I, <laughs> you know... Not those melanate, melamite ones. No, from, those yeah. are tough. Yeah, yeah, those yeah, are yeah. tough. <laughs> you know, one metal Korean chopstick, you're not going to break yeah. it. But like, um, That's what they say about Koreans. That's actually yeah, just some... Unbreakable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Korea's <laughs> the most invaded country ever in the exactly. world. Exactly. Unbreakable. <laughs> one metal chopstick. Yeah. But, um, and no, those long spoons. Yeah, I mean, look, forget they it. They got the best, the best yeah, chopstick utensils. spoon game. Yeah, Crazy. that is so true. Yeah. Um, that game. Yeah, no, the, my, my mom was really about unity and solidarity, and yeah. I learned a lot of it from her. And yeah, that it, it's time for that. We can't sit back. And uh, I also don't think we can allow people to have hateful, ignorant, fearful, xenophobic opinions. You know, like us liberals, uh, you know, we really believe in the democratic system. We really believe in open debate. But... When somebody shows up with a weapon that should not be used in this forum, like, the rules have to change. Yeah. I'm not saying go out with pitchforks or whatever, but it's like, we cannot allow people to hold opinions like Trump and Bannon and then debate with them the same way we would somebody like, even Mitt Romney. You know what I mean? He like so uh, civilized. Like, yeah. Like, Mitt Romney in comparison now, I was like... <laughs> well, oh, I, 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 I know, I'm like, this... <laughs> Oh, this, take McCain. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I, well, I, I think what I, the way I would reframe that from my perspective is it's not that people can't have those opinions, can have whatever opinion you want, is that there should be a decorum and a sense of more morality and ethics that you can't use those as weapons in the public sphere, and especially as you're turning people against each other. I would hope eventually they don't have those opinions, but people are always going to be hateful bitches. 
Yeah, right? I mean, but I don't think they should be accepted in society. They should I, not be. I, 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 I don't I think there's a place for it. I, I completely agree. And, and you know, growing up, I remember, like, you'd go to people's houses or dinner tables, and, you know, grandma or grandpa or this guy's going to say something hateful, say something about Jewish people or Muslims or black people or gay people, and it was hateful, and you're like, oh, well, they're from a different generation. Yeah. Like, it has to start at the dinner table. It yeah. has to start at home, like, grandma, you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. And then she's like... Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's like, hey, I'm not afraid of people that don't want to be my friend or don't like me anymore because of an opinion or because I shoot down their opinion if it's hateful or ignorant. Because, hey, if we're really friends, then I would respect your values. Yeah. If I can't respect your values, then like I don't want to be friends with you. So I'm going to tell you that. When was the first time you felt like an American or really thought about American identity. And I know that there was some, some stuff about the American institution that you chafe at um, or the American idea that you fundamentally disagree with, but you're also here fighting for it. So yeah. I'm curious about when you started to identify and then where are you facing your, your, your issues? What are you chafing at right now? Yeah, you know, the first time I actually felt American and was proud to say it, and I'm not saying it just now because of what's going on, but I actually wrote it in my first book. It was the night that President Obama won the election in 08. And like, I get emotional every time I talk about it because um, so much of my career and success I can tie to President Obama. Mm. I never thought I would see a black president in America. And to me, he represented all immigrants and all people who were different or weird or seen as outcasts. And when I heard him speak, I was super inspired because he didn't have hate, he didn't have anger, he was persistent. And even now, to, to like these really tough weeks, you see President Obama reasonable, measured, persistent. He's not giving up, he's not raising his voice, he's persistent. And like a lot of people have given him a hard time because they want more fire from him and they want more anger from him and they want him to be heavy handed. But like I've watched this man just be consistent, stick by reason and not alienate people and stand on the right side. And, you know, he was a huge inspiration. So um, for me, the night he got elected was the first time I was like, you know what? I'm proud to be American because we did the right thing. We picked the right guy. Hmm. That faded pretty quickly because of, like, you know, a lot of Democrats turned on him his, his first term in office yeah. and didn't support him. And I also felt like a lot of Americans felt their job was done once we elected him. And, like, look what happened. It, it couldn't just be one guy. It had to be all of us constantly, every single day, engaged. And so, you know, that, that feeling faded quickly. But <clears throat> there was a moment, and it was fantastic, and it taught me that it can happen and it will happen again. So it gave you some optimism and hope, or it... Yeah, and, and you know what, even the way people have reacted in the last week has given me hope, because people are in the streets, people are talking online, people are trying to figure out what to do, and look, it's never too late. It is very sad that so many of us have let our civic duties slip through our fingers, but at least we're getting on the horse now. When did your parents become citizens? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. My mom came over when she was 17. I think my dad was like 25 when he came over after he was in the Taiwanese military. They're so bad with dates. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm surprised I even know what year I'm born in. But... Yeah, totally. That's because the man made them um, register you. 
Yes, <laughs> yes. But you know, like my family has a lot of uh, pregnancy issues and stuff, mm. like in my family, and there's things that happen. So when my parents give me actual dates, then I can put the puzzle together. So uh -huh. they've kept dates from me because it's like tough to talk about, you know. Uh -huh. So did they talk to you about voting? No, mm -hmm. no. They because. I don't bash on them for this. When they came to America, they were never treated like Americans. Yeah. They, were, they never believed that they would get to be a part of this country in an equal and fair way. My mom was a server at a Mexican restaurant called Anita's mm -hmm. in, in Virginia. And every night, you know, when you're a server, you put the ketchup in the bottles and you do your side work, you refill all the ketchup. All the other girls that were servers would steal her ketchup as soon as she was done because she couldn't really speak English and defend herself. Mm -hmm. They would end up making her do all the side work and then take credit for it. And it was really hard for her. And she got very, very upset. Um, my dad was laughed at constantly because he was a server at a restaurant too. People laughed at him because he didn't know like the garnish on certain drinks. They say Chinaman stuff. And so, you know, it was hard for me growing up, but I can't imagine what it was like for them coming over. Um, I mean, immigrants 70s. are such badasses. Yeah. <laughs> it's un unbelievable what they went through. Um, yeah, so they, they, you know, sometimes they vote, sometimes they don't vote. I was very, you know, um, I didn't ask them this time. But uh, if you ask my father, who migrated to America for opportunity, he will tell you it was a good decision. He's very proud of coming to America. He's very proud of becoming a successful American. My mom, on the other hand, may give you a different answer. Well, she will give you a different answer. My dad credits America for a lot of his success. My mom feels like we did it in spite of America. And so it's, it's up to the individual. But I, I, I definitely am in the camp with my mother that I feel like um, anytime you are different, uh, if, if you're a different white American, it's you, you are doing things in spite of the status quo and in spite of the matrix. So um, I, I think that anyone who's different, who America doesn't roll the carpet out for, you've created your own space. I don't bother my parents with the America stuff because yeah. they have their reasons for feeling why they do and I think it's valid. Yeah. I'm not like a rah-rah America guy. Yeah. I, I love New York. I love, I believe in America, what it stands for and what the constitution says. Do I think we live up to it? No. You know, do I want to be part of us living up to it? Yes. That's awesome. You know. We're ready to fight with you, right guys? Yeah. You travel a lot, and I'm sure you guys have watched Wong's World and uh, Fresh Off the Boat. I hope you have, because it's the best. Thank but, you. But um, when you travel, sort of what are you seeking? I'd love to hear a little bit about what you kind of the parallel life when you see when you're, when you're abroad and what you're looking for. I like to go places that make me uncomfortable and make me question the way I do things and the way I think. Not uncomfortable in the sense that I gotta stay at a Holiday Inn Express, but uncomfortable <laughs> in the sense that like, you can't, you know, just even in any type of way, like the way we eat food, the way we greet people, I like to see customs, I like traditions, I like to see value systems mm. that challenge mine. Mm. And um, you know, one place I really would encourage people in America to go is Japan. And growing up, um, Japan was always viewed as like kind of the enemy. If you're East Asian and you're not Japanese, Jap Japan invaded so many countries that your parents and grandparents were probably like, don't go to Japan. And then you do your 23andMe and you find out you're like 40% <laughs> Japanese. Yeah, yeah they, got, they, got, Trust, they got somebody. you do your 23andMe, you're all a little bit Japanese. Yeah, but then the, the, thing, with, the thing with Japan that's super interesting to go see is, is that the respect 
and and the surface level interaction is so different there than it is in America. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be more opposite. And there's no country that's made me think about what's important and how I want to function on a daily basis with people and with my society than Japan. Hmm. Japan's very interesting. It has, to- it has tons of flaws, too. So I got this jacket in Japan, so... Oh, we could tell. I feel a part of it. <laughs> um, I also want to hear a little bit about your experience in China, right? As a Chinese, Taiwanese, Chinese, American, and then going there, what were you kind of looking for or trying to experience when you're there? What was I looking for specifically in China? Yeah, I mean, you talked a little bit about, like, seeing what your life might have been. Yeah. I think everyone has to go back to their homeland and and where their ancestors are from because there's things you carry with you that you don't even know. Mm. Like, just the way you do things, the way you say things, little sayings or little things that you saw in the home, things that your parents carried, things your parents made. Um, When you go see the original home or the original country it was made in, it's, it's incredible. It makes your life make sense. And there's like a through line in a narrative from like your mother's belly button to you in 2016 and it, it, it's something that you just ha- you have to do you have to do and, and that's what I was going for I was going for like that thread and that bridge between myself and a history that had been broken by being born in America you know it's very tough for some people because a lot of communities they have been broken off from their native history from their native tongue and have been kept purposefully ignorant of it so that they, they would not rise up. But you gotta, you gotta figure it out. I mean, 23andMe is a great way to you know, check it out and be like, well, some of this is on me. I'm not, I'm not sponsored by them. I yeah. just think it's really fun. I love 23andMe. It's, it's super so interesting. It's really fun to see. I mean, I am 95% Ashkenazi Jew, so it wasn't that exciting, but I learned other things. I'm like one percenter Crow uh, Neanderthal. Oh, yeah, like, of yeah. course. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I see it right here. Yeah. Yeah. This this plate keeps you warm. (laughs) So we think a lot at the Match of Americans about exactly what you're talking about, being deeply rooted while you're also looking forward and and being connected to your homeland or, or whatever, where your answers are and the storytelling piece of that. I'm curious when you think about dating, and I, according to this book, I... I don't want to spoil it, but there's this whole love story in it, and, and it ends kind of tragically. And um, I, um, sorry. The ending came out online before the book came out. That's how like. No, I was googling it when you started talking about her in the beginning. I was like, oh, sorry, sitting there googling her name, just trying to be like, what? How does this turn out? But I think she, a lot of people did because, like, my boy was online the other day and he typed in my name, and the first thing came up was Eddie Wong wife. Yeah. And, and he sent me or a screenshot. Or there's a lot of people who want to marry you. Um, <laughs> either or. I'm wondering, you know, as we're all hopefully dating a little on campus around the different schools. Mashing up. Um, hello, yes. <laughs> Do it, or, and you know, just casually. I wonder, you know, I think one of the things that was really beautiful to me is that you, as you, you were exploring how you told your mom, how would you tell your mom that you were gonna propose to somebody? And she was a white girl, or Italian, Irish, from Scranton, and you were stressed out, and she had this beautiful reaction. You read the book, you'll know. She was like, I love you, what are you talking about? And you said it actually matters to you. What does it mean to you to date somebody 
and think about creating a life with somebody who is different from you? I feel like if you are dating somebody and you want an honest, real, genuine relationship that leads to love and other things, the person needs to be able to understand and relate to your experience. And I think that when people date others of the same race, the assumption is, is that because we are of the same race or we're from the same neighborhood or from the same region of America, then we have a similarity of experience and we have a better chance of understanding each other. Mm-hmm. My, my experience tells me that that's not always true. Yeah. Reasonably, if you are of the same color and from a similar region, you probably, or same socioeconomic status, you probably share experiences and, and you can understand. But um, I have a lot of friends I grew up with that are similar. I don't understand anything they're doing now. You know? <laughs> um, and, and sometimes I'll go back to Japan. Like I go to Japan and I've had the best whiskey I've ever had in Japan. I've had one of the sec- tied for first best hamburger I've ever had in Japan. They um, do have good beef. Yeah, they have excellent vintage polo, like one of the best vintage <laughs> polo stores ever. And I'm just like, how is it that people in Japan like experienced American culture on a vacation or through newspapers or movies and TV and, and were able to connect with it and understand it and then reproduce these cultural artifacts. And that always tells me like, you don't have to be of this race or of this place to understand the values and experience and what you're trying to say. One thing I do always think about when I date someone that is not of color is will they be able to relate to the experience of being like fragmented Mm -hmm. and oppressed. And I feel like because I'm a male and I'm dating women that every single woman has been discriminated against and told they can't do something. So immediately that there's that that we can kind of relate on. I don't know what it's like from the female to the male side, but you dating a white man, I I imagine that it's gonna be more difficult. Like they would have had to find that experience or find the empathy in their heart to relate to that experience without actually having it. As somebody married to a white man, we can explore this later offline. Um, (laughs) He did good. If you're not of the same race or experience, then you have to have some empathy and you have to have the ability to step outside of yourself. So that's what I would say. Some shared value system, I think. Yeah. Um, so I want to leave some time for you guys to ask questions. Uh, does I don't know where. I think somebody has a mic. Oh, back there. Does anybody have a question for Eddie? They're I can not. start the line on this side over here. The Go voice for of it. God. Where is voice of God? That's you. <laughs> yeah. Ah, cool. <laughs> it's blind. Everybody, everybody, we'll, hang we'll out behind the, the, yeah. the, the man with the godlike voice. <laughs> hey, Eddie. Hello. Um, so I've been I hailed... waiting for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And uh, since you uh, brought up Japan, I was um, wondering if you had any specific experience in Japan that has really stuck with you for the longest time, and if you could tell about that story. There are people called hikikimori in Japan, and hikikimori are people who refuse to participate in society any longer. Mm. Um, they shut themselves in to a room. They do not come out. A lot of them poop and pee in boxes or whatever, and then they put it outside the door. Their parents or whoever cares for them will take it, 
dispose of it, put food under their door. And the thing with Japanese society is, is that it is a very respect-based, it is a very accomplishments-based, and it's very big on face, right? Many times it's solely about this projection of self that the rest of your society sees. And a lot of these people, they feel overburdened by the expectations of Japanese society. They cannot live up to these, like, play, the, these ideals that Japanese society has. And they become hikikimori, and, and they're basically shut-ins. And I found them to be the sweetest, nicest, most enlightening people mm. because they'd been fully broken. They gave up and they checked out, but they were still alive. And every single one of them had hope. And in a way, when I spoke to them, they were all like, hey, I'm smart, I'm fine, I could participate in this society when I want, but it is so terrible that I will not give myself to it. It doesn't deserve me until it gets better. Hmm. And so uh, I met one of them and not to big up myself, like we had a really good conversation, we hung out and he actually like got outside of his crib with me. <laughs> and I checked back in you on him. You brought him that whiskey. <laughs> yeah, I checked back in on him like uh, a few months later and he was like trying to be part of the society and then unfortunately he gave up again a year later. But it was, I mean, it was an incredible thing to see. So Hikiki Mori was really interesting to me. Awesome, thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you, God. <laughs> Uh, hi, I'm George. I'm a freshman at Pitzer. Um, we have a first-year uh, seminar class about Asians in America, um, specifically the model minority. So I wanted to get your perspective on how we can start combating a lot of the negative aspects. And I think there are a lot of negative aspects that come with the model minority. So apoliticalness, keeping your head down and like moving ahead. So how do we, as Asian Americans, allies, how do we start combating that and like giving Asians more freedom to express themselves and not be as rigidly defined. The model minority myth is something that's like extremely painful to talk about because for so long when I was growing up, you know, I would hear people, oh, you're a model minority, it's so much easier to be Asian and yada yada. And like, yes, we have different challenges, but if you look at the history, the model minority stereotype comes from the Japanese internment camps. It comes from executive order. And so that's another thing that we have to be very aware of now that Trump is president. He could do something like take a race of people and put them into a camp. That's what happened uh, with Roosevelt, who was actually a fantastic president, but Japanese internment camps. And people started to see you know, what happened to Asians when they came out of those camps. And people were like, oh, they're model minorities. And you know what? If you do this to minorities, if you put them in camps, you discipline them, you know, they'll behave and they'll be minorities that we like in our society. And so a lot of the symptoms and things that Asian Americans display, it comes from internment camps. It's, it's a very tough thing to swallow, especially when someone tries to tell you that it's easier to be a model minority. I would say, <laughs> as an ally. And actually, my, my partner Amy is Korean-American. We, we joke about we're going to open a bar called The Model Minority, or K's and J's. Um, but um, I would say I think having people like Eddie as models, role models, um, or people like Aquafina or Margaret Cho, or you, know, you start to have, you have Master of None, you start to see yourself more reflected and not as 
whatever that, you know, head down, focused, nerdy, getting things done kind of thing, model minority, like as you start to see his, the way his vernacular, him being underestimated and then just being like, yeah, I'm an attorney, but also here's all what I know and I wear shants. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so I think to me that, that the more that we can promote that in our media and in our storytelling, in our leadership, like let's figure out how we get more Asian Americans in office, it starts to uh, change, it starts to change the narrative because, hey, look, Kamala Harris, she's half Indian, half black, and she's gonna change that narrative for us too, so. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah, I, I agree, it's, it's, it's um, intelligence comes in many forms, and that's why I gravitated towards hip hop as a kid. There was nothing that spoke to me, I didn't see Asian role models, but I saw black people talking about their experiences and their struggles, and I related to it, and I had empathy for it, and I was raised on it. Like, hip-hop taught me more than anything else that I learned in school, and, um, you know. You're lucky we didn't start rapping, yeah. but that's <laughs> for the next one. Good question. Yeah. Thank you, George. I'm Caitlin, I go to Scripps. Um, so I'm from Queens, born and raised, and Growing up was really weird for me. I never really like could fully identify as an American or Korean, or I didn't know what it like meant to be a Korean American. Um, I ate Korean food all the time, but as I got older, I like, got kind of jaded, and I was like, "What is this? Like, there's so much cool food out there that I could be eating." I don't know, and I, I kind of lost touch with it, and I was kind of like embarrassed. But recently, like I've just been trying to kind of rediscover what it means to come from that culture and like I'm trying to embrace it and freaking love my food. It's so dank. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I just wanted to ask for advice on how to do that. I like this. I, I, think, I think you're on the right track. I think I messed up my mic so I'm going to hold this thing. I, I do this sometimes. But um, you're asking me how to re-embrace and, and kind of find yourself. And it, it, well, this reminds me of something funny. I was like, I was on a date the other night and I was like making fun of myself for being fat and you know, the girl was just like, you know, I, I, I'm fine and, and you're fine, you just need to have positive body image, Eddie. And I was like, oh, oh word. <laughs> and, but in terms of like you and your embarrassment with food, it's, it's okay. Like, you know, there's times where I was like, God damn, like it is really hard to be Asian especially like when you're 12 and, and eight, when Asians go through puberty, like we look crazy. <laughs> we look super crazy. And like my hair was going out like this and I was just like, what is going on? And I just look like a human calculator. And like at that point, it was very hard to be proud of being Asian, you know? And it's okay as long as you, you find it again. And I think it's important for everyone to not self-hate. It's like, you are who you are. And yeah, you are who you are. It's, you know, what you don't like about yourself, somebody else is gonna love. I have experienced that firsthand and I thought it was crazy, but yes, like, something you hate about yourself, other people are gonna love. Yeah. You also call yourself the human panda. I am, I'm the human panda. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you guys dug our first live show. For more of Eddie's wisdom, make sure to follow him at Mr. Eddie Huang on the Twitters. 
Also, it's holiday time mashups. Check out our gift guides and our indispensable guide to being the best non-Jew at the Hanukkah party on mashupamericans.com. Thanks again to Eddie Huang, Scripps, the Garrison Theater, and of course, our producer Jocelyn Gonzalez, our partners American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. And never forget the National Endowment for the Arts. Bye!